begins to take root in your heart, the word of God will catch it before it takes root. It's almost like it's sin. It's the way that it works. It's almost like you guys know what, you know, Lyme's disease or a tick, you know, a tick is, it gets on you and then it burrows into you. Right. And depending on how far in that tick gets, depends on how bad the situation can be. That's a visual that might be hard to erase, but the example pastor Daniel just shared is true sin can start to burrow into your heart and it can get a firm grip on what's going on in your own life. But this isn't what God wants for you. God's word can be your greatest defense from sin becoming implanted into your heart. Instead, Pastor Daniel wants you to see today that you can have God's word ingrained in you and it won't kill you. It gives life. Now here's Pastor Daniel in Joshua chapter 21 as he continues his message for the Levites. It says in verse 4, Now the lot came out for the families of the Kohathites and the children of Aaron the priest who were of the Levites had 13 cities by lot from the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of Simeon, and from the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 5, the rest of the children of Kohath had 10 cities by lot from the families of the tribes of Ephraim, the tribe of Dan, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. Verse 6, and the children of Gershon had 13 cities by lot from the families of the tribe of Issachar, from the tribe of Asher, and from the tribe of Naphtali, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh in Bashan. And the children of Merari, according to their families, had 12 cities from the tribe of Reuben, from the tribe of Gad, and from the half-tribe of Zebulun. So really what you have now is we are reminded, of course, it begins with the descendants of Aaron, who was of the Levites through Kohath, who we know as the Kohathites. Now, of course, they are treated separately because Aaron is the family of the high priest, right? So in the midst of all this, the high priest gets some preference here. And really what they do is they give us kind of the breakdown of what everything is, and then the whole rest of the chapter gives us all the cities and place names. Now, if you want more information, if you read First Chronicles chapter 6, you can use First Chronicles chapter 6 as additional information so that if you wanted to have fun with all this. And if you really enjoy this, you can go back and literally in the back of your Bibles, you see where all these things are. And so, but what's interesting here is that Aaron's descendants end up getting the natural place If you notice what it says, 13 cities by lot of the tribe of Judah, from the tribe of Simeon, and from the tribe of Benjamin. So they're in the southern part of the land. Obviously, the city of Jerusalem is in the tribe of Benjamin. And so don't miss the fact that the high priest's concentration is in where Jerusalem will be. So even though right now Shiloh is the center of the religious and the political life, God knew that he was going to have Jerusalem be that. And he put the descendants of Kohath, the descendants of Aaron, right there in the midst of that land. Now, it's interesting, of course, that Kohath was the second son of Levi. 
So once again, you have the idea of the preference for the firstborn being subverted. Now, I always bring this up as we're studying the Old Testament because it's not as common today. We live in a culture that has more of like a, the equitable division. But in that culture, the firstborn was considered to be the next head of the family. And so the firstborn son was given a double portion of the inheritance, twice as much as everybody else, and was automatically thought to be the successor to the father as the head of the family or the, of the clan. Now, what's interesting is all through the Bible, you end up having a subversion of this, right? Like God chose Jacob instead of his brother, right? His brother Esau. You know, you have... Isaac chosen instead of Ishmael. You have all of these subversions that go on. And ultimately, of the sons of Judah, really, it's the tribe of Judah that's the one that's chosen, which was the fourthborn. And so what we find oftentimes is in the Bible that God works subversively against common ways things happen. And I think people today, contemporary people, when they struggle with the Bible... They struggle with it because they feel like God didn't go far enough in fixing things. Like I was just having this conversation recently about how 2018, they're calling it the year of the woman, which I thought is so cool. I'm like, it's, a, it's about time. And then I kind of got sad because I'm like, you know, Jesus was the great liberator of women. And the person looked at me like shocked. It's like, excuse me? I'm like, yeah, Jesus was the greatest liberator of women known to humanity. Like, well, how does that work? I'm like, well, you realize that in Jesus' culture that women were not allowed to testify in a court of law? And I'm like, and the first person to testify of the resurrection was a woman named Mary. She was the apostle to the apostles. And they looked at me, they're like, you really? I'm like, yeah, you just go read it. I mean, like, think about that. In that culture, in the court of law, a woman was not even allowed to testify. And Jesus tells Mary, hey, listen, I want you to go tell my disciples that I'm alive. And they wrote that into the Bible. Like, if they were trying to make it culturally relevant and appropriate, they would take that out. They would take out the fact that all the disciples scattered and all the women were still there. And then when Jesus rose from there, the first person he saw was Mary. And he's like, Mary, go tell them. And Mary goes and tells them. And they would have just ignored her because that was what the culture was. And I'm like, oh, yeah. So I'm like, you don't think Jesus was the greatest liberator of women? I'm like, what about this story about the woman caught in the act of adultery? I'm like, you realize that Jesus realized what the injustice was. Like, what was the injustice? I'm like, where was the man? She was caught in the very act. So obviously, if she was caught in the very act of adultery, it would be two people, right? But they only brought the woman because that was what was going on in that culture. And Jesus calls him out on it. He protects her. He's her advocate. He doesn't tell her, just keep doing what you're doing. He says, listen, I don't condemn you either. Just go and sin no more. He protects her. He advocates for her. And then he challenges her to live differently. And then I'm like, and then of course... What everyone says is the most, the most anti-woman thing in the Bible that wives submit to your husbands. And the person said, you're right, that's the most sexist thing in the Bible. I'm like, it's actually not as sexist as you think. And they're like, excuse me? You think wives should submit to their husbands? I'm like, well, if you read that whole thing in context, they should. And they looked horrified. They're like, I need to talk to your wife. But I'm like, you realize right before that verse, it says that you should submit to one another in the love of, under the fear of Christ. So it begins with submit to one another. And then it says, wives to your own husbands as unto the Lord. I'm like, now you realize the very fact that the apostle Paul is telling wives that they should still submit to their husbands shows the liberty that Jesus offers. Because for the first time in history, a woman had the option not to. 
And I'm like, but it doesn't say submit to every man. It says submit to your own husband as under the Lord. And the person was like, I can't believe that you would think a wife should submit to their husband. I'm like, but you know what Paul tells men to do? I'm like, you should love your wives as Christ loved the church and you should give up your life for her. And I'm like, so if it's sexist, would you rather submit or die? It's good, right? This is just Bible, you know? And they're like, um, neither. I'm like, ah, good answer, good answer. See, the idea here is that what the Bible does is it understands it's existing in a context and the word of God subverts these things. It works against these things in a million different ways. And one of the ways is this idea that the firstborn ultimately gets the place of preeminence. And now again, you have another example of it where Kohath now is the secondborn of Levi and he gets the preeminence. Happens all through your Bible. So one of the things that you should do as you read the Bible is you should say, what's going on that is being subversive to the culture that we live in? Now, of course, we talk about this a lot here at Crossroads is that God also calls us as followers of Jesus, to be subversive to our culture as well. And too many of us would prefer to accommodate our culture than to be subversive in the midst of it. And to me, when the church of Jesus Christ accommodates to culture, we lose our saltiness. We're no longer a city, a light for the world, a city set on a hill. And what's amazing is, is as a pastor, I actually, and for those of you who are here a lot, you know I love this. I love to subvert the church's accommodationist position just to see how frustrated people will get with me. Like, I'll step on your toes because I know that I'm supposed to. But the reason I step on the toes is not because I'm really just liking to to bust your toes up. I do it because I want to make people think, am I accommodating a cultural position that's not a biblical position? Am I willing just to accept the playing field as 21st century American culture defines it Or should we say, yes, that's how our culture defines it, but our Bible defines it this way. And when we're willing to do that, all of a sudden, the way we see the world changes. Now, and here's the thing, all of us accommodate our culture in ways that are not biblical. All of us do. And all of us do it in unique ways, given who you are, the way you were raised, the things that you hold dear, and and how you weight the information that you're coming from. Like, some people weight the news programs higher than their Bible, right? Some people wait a blog or something higher than their Bible. Like, so, and for each one of us, we have to say, where do I place the Bible? Some people take Christian authors. I can always tell when I watch somebody who loves Jesus and they start getting a little crusty, within five minutes of talking, I can always tell which Christian author they've been learning from. Because you take on those personalities, right? So if you start reading someone who's very dogged, and, and then very quickly, they're like, oh, yeah. Oh, you're reading that book. Oh, good. Okay, yeah. We should talk about that, you know? Because what it is, is we, we are so easily influenced, aren't we? But here's the thing. What I've found is that Jesus wants to subvert your accommodationist position in mind too. And I think that's why it's so important to be people of the word. That's why it's so important. And not only hear Bible studies and teachings and podcasts, but you read it for yourself. You with your Bible and a journal receiving your spiritual nourishment from the Lord. 
Because there's nothing more, man. I mean, it's one thing to hear in a Bible study when someone's preaching. It's another thing when you're sitting in your quiet time, whether your quiet time's in the morning or in the evening or however you do that, and a verse drops off the page and nails you in the heart. And you're like, oh, sorry, Lord. And that's why I think so often we don't get into the Bible because we, we haven't found the preciousness of the conviction of the spirit through the word. My pastor, John Henry, used to say that when he grabbed his father's Bible for the first time, he'd never read it before. In the inside of his Bible, it says, sin will keep you from this book and this book will keep you from sin. And oftentimes the reason we don't get in the book is because sin's keeping us from the book. We just, you just don't want to have to hear it. But listen, when you're in the word, it'll keep you from sin. Because as you're reading it and as you're digesting it and receiving it, all of a sudden you start to realize, okay, God's got a lot of work he's doing in me right now. There's a lot of things he's got to work on here. Like I'm way more jacked up than I want to acknowledge. And what's also good is that if you have a diet of the word of God, when the beginning seeds of sin begins to take root in your heart, the word of God will catch it before it takes root. It's almost like it's sin. It's the way that it works. It's almost like you guys know, you know, Lyme's disease or a tick, you know, a tick is, it gets on you and then it burrows into you. Right. And depending on how far in that tick gets, depends on how bad the situation could be. So like, you know, um, my family was living in the Bay Area before we got here. And obviously that's like Lyme's disease, you know, uh, central right there in the Bay Area. And, you know, my wife had Lyme's disease growing up and we were hiking in Annabelle. We found two ticks on Annabelle. And so it was really scary. But what is, is first it gets on you and then it gets in you. And then if it gets in you, then it infects you. And so the temptations that lead to full-blown rebellion against God, it starts small. And when you're the kind of person who's in the Bible every day, now it's like you have like a, a steady antibiotic, so to speak, against that temptation, where all of a sudden you'll catch yourself sensing a temptation long before it gets anywhere into you. But it's on the outside, but you catch it because you're so used to checking your life against the pure word of God. And so we want to allow the spirit of God to subvert our rebellion. Like you have to welcome it. You have to say, Lord, will you search my heart and know me, O God, and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Because isn't it true? Left up to your own devices for just a little bit of time, you can get yourself all messed up. Isn't it true? You're like, you just get to give yourself a little bit of room. And then before you know it, you're like, what am I doing? And so we want to be people who are in the word of God because the word of God subverts the ways of rebellion against us. And so picking up in verse nine, we get the kind of the elongation of the land. So I'm just going to read the whole section for the Kohathites. It says, so they gave from the tribe of the children of Judah, this is verse nine, and from the tribe of the children of Simeon, these cities, which were designated by name, which were for the children of Aaron, one of the families 
of the Kohathites who were of the children of Levi, for the lot was theirs first. And they gave them Kirjath Arba. Arba was the father of Anak, which is Hebron in the mountains of Judah with the common land surrounding it. But the field of the city and its villages they gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, as his possession. Thus to the children of Aaron, the priest, they gave Hebron with its common land, a city of refuge for the slayer, Libna with its common land, Jatir with its common land, Estemoa with its common land, Holon with its common land, Debir with its common land, Ayan with its common land, Judah with its common land, and Beth with its common land. Nine cities from those two tribes, and from the tribe of Benjamin, Gibeon with its common land, Geba with its common land, Anathoth with its common land, and Almon with its common land, four cities. All the cities of the children of Aaron, the priests, were 13 cities and their common lands. And then in verse 20, and the, well, that's all for the tribe for Aaron, which is a subset of the Kohathites. Now, there's a million things that we can talk about different cities. I think what is interesting is first that Kirjath Arba was the father of Anak or the Anakim, which were known to be giants in that day. Right, So we read about them many, many times. We find out, of course, that they get the Hebron, and but the fields of the city and its villages they gave to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh's possession. So you notice that you have Caleb and his special inheritance goes right next to the inheritance of the descendants of Kohath right there. The only other thing that I want to bring out in these verses, in verse 18, Anathoth. Anybody know who came from Anathoth? Jeremiah. Oh man, we have to study Jeremiah together, don't we? Jeremiah, you read Jeremiah chapter one, verse one, that he was from Anathoth. So again, Jeremiah was a priest from the descendants of Kohath, from the line of Aaron in that area. Now, for the rest of 10 more cities that go to the descendants of Kohath and from the families, verse 20, of the children of Kohath, the Levites, the rest of the children of Kohath, even they had cities of their lot from the tribe of Ephraim. For they gave them Shechem with its common lands in the mountains of Ephraim, a city of refuge for the slayer, Gezer with its common land, Kibzaim with its common land, and Bethoron with its common land, four cities from the tribe of Dan, Elteketh with its common land, Gibbethon with its common land, Agilon with its common land, and Gathramon with its common land, four cities, and from the half-tribe of Manasseh, Tanakh with its common land, and Gathramon with its common land, two cities, all the ten cities with their common lands were for the rest of the families of the children of Kohath. So literally what you have is they are just spreading the Levites out throughout everywhere. And you notice it's going by tribe, by descendants of Levi, Just very systematic. You get this place, you get this place, you get this place. And what you start realizing is a lot of these city names are common names that you hear in the Bible for different things. Obviously, because the Levites are there, this is meant to be an agent of preservation for the children of Israel having the Levites scattered throughout the land. Now, in verse 27 to 33, we have the Levitical cities for the Gershonites. So it says it this way in verse 27. Also for the children of Gershon, of the families of the Levites, from the other half tribe of Manasseh, they gave Golan and Bashan with its common land, a city of refuge for the slayer, and B. Esterah with its common land, two cities, and from the tribe of Issachar, Kishion with its common land and 
Dabarath with its common land, Jarmuth with its common land, and Enganim with its common land, four cities. And from the tribe of Asher, Mishael with its common land, Abdon with its common land, Helkath with its common land, and Rehob with its common land, four cities. And from the tribe of Naphtali, Kadesh in Galilee with its common land, a city of refuge for the slayer, Hamoth Dor with its common land, and Carton with its common land. Three cities, all the cities of the Gershonites, according to their families, were 13 cities with their common land. So again, the Gershonites, 13 cities in eastern Manasseh, Issachar, Asher, and Naphtali. And you also notice that, of course, Golan in the Galilee region. So you realize that the Levitical cities are in the north part of the promised land. Galilee, of course, was where Jesus did a good portion of his base of ministries. He find himself around the Sea of Galilee in a place called Capernaum. You'll see Jesus there a lot. Actually, if you go to the Holy Land, it's Capernaum. It's the town of the prophet Nahum. That's actually where Capernaum comes from. You don't realize that. I remember I always tell the story when I think of Capernaum because I remember Lynn and I and Obed I was one years old. Uh, we took him there and we were, we were in the north and we were staying in a kibbutz in the Sea of Galilee area. And we, we hailed a taxi. We said, take us to Capernaum. And the guy looked at us like we were crazy. And I said, Capernaum? And he said, Capernaum? And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, uh, mm. and then he, we looked at him, he's like, Kefernehum? And I'm like, yeah, there. You know, and he took me there. And sure enough, I, I didn't even realize it. You know, Kefir and Nahum, that's how you, that's where you get Capernaum from. Now, in verses 34 to 39, we get the breakdown of the descendants of Merari. It says this, also for the families of the children of Merari, the rest of the Levites from the tribe of Zebulun, Jachnaim and its common land, Kartoth with its common land, Dimna with its common land, and Nahalal with its common land, four cities, and from the tribe of Reuben, Bezer with its common land, Jahaz with its common land, Kedemoth with its common land, and Methath, I don't even know how to say that, with its common land, four cities, and from the tribe of Gad, Ramoth and Gilead with its common land, a city of refuge for the slayer, Mahanim with its common land, Heshbon with its common land, and Jazer with its common land. Four cities in all. So all the cities of the children of Mary, according to their families, the rest of the families of the Levites were all by their lot, 12 cities. All the cities of the Levites within the possession of the children of Israel were 48 cities with their common lands. Every one of these cities had thus common land surrounding it. Thus all were these cities. So what's fascinating also, and I didn't bring it up before, but you notice oftentimes those cities given to the Levites were also those cities of refuge that we saw in the last chapter in Joshua chapter 20, which made sense actually. It's like if you have a place where people are fleeing for their lives, you would want deeply spiritual people to be arbitrating or, or determining people with discernment what is really going on here. So you end up with 48 cities scattered throughout all of the promised land, which is the inheritance of the Levites. Now, what I also think is beautiful is that God gave them himself, but he also gave them a place to call home. Jesus is How interesting it was to hear Pastor Daniel teach about the Levites being scattered throughout the land. 
they were placed in the cities of refuge, which showed God's fairness to those who might flee to those cities. The Levites had much spiritual discernment and knowledge, and so it was a safeguard to have those people positioned in each city of refuge. This was better than if they were in one local place. Hey everybody, Pastor Daniel here. I just want to say thank you for tuning in. I'm so stoked you're a listener of Jesus' Real Radio, and I know Jesus has amazing plans for you. I'd love to hear the story of how God's working in your life. Give us a call here at Jesus' Real Radio at 360-256-4655 or email me at real at danielfusco.com. We're so glad we can be a part of your life through the ministry of Jesus is Real Radio. Would you like to be a part of what we're doing? We would like to ask that you prayerfully consider becoming a financial partner of this program. Your contribution, no matter the size, will be used to reach people with the gospel message. Find out more at JesusIsRealRadio.com. Just click on Give. Thank you for partnering with us. Join us again here on Jesus is Real Radio when Pastor Daniel will talk about the benefits of following and obeying God. He'll also touch on the things that occur when you choose disobedience, rebellion, and being apart from God's will and ways. The children of Israel were no strangers to these benefits and also these consequences as they journeyed on their way. There are significant reasons why God asks for obedience. We wish we had more time today, but we will have to pick up where we left off next time as Pastor Daniel continues teaching through this series called Homestead. That's next time on Jesus Is Real Radio.